all the folks in the back that enable us to worship like that. Um, sometimes I feel like uh, when I'm leading and when I'm not, doesn't really matter, but sometimes I, I feel like I, all I needed was the congregational singing. And I walk away just lifted up in my spirit. And what's a great thing about not leading, and it's hard for me not to lead. I, I know it's appropriate and, and good for me in the long run to not do that. But what's hard, what, what's, what I do like about it is being able to just every once in a while not sing and just listen. And especially uh, on a Sunday night like this when everybody's in here together, um, Man, it's, it's a sweet sound. And it really does make me think of Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, I don't expect you to know the context of that chapter, but I was thinking about it as I was listening, and it's the context of some of that chapter is the spirit-filled believer, the spirit-filled church. And, and, and the very first thing that Paul points out, out as, as a product of a spirit-filled believer is one that sings. One that sings psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And by doing so in a spirit-filled way, they teach and admonish their brother and sister in Christ. Amen. And I don't know if you realize that that's actually what you're doing in singing. We're not just, uh, it's not just the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name by way of praise and, and by way of offering our worship to God through song. But you are lifting up your brother and sister in Christ. And, and it's, it's just a very practical, easy way, whether you're a good singer or not, it's an easy way to admonish one another. And I hope, I really hope, that for years, decades to come in the future, that Fellowship Baptist Church takes very seriously our time to corporately sing together. Amen. I, hope we, I hope we never limit our singing to a group of people on the platform. But I hope that everybody, whether you enjoy music or not, like singing or not, I hope you'll come spirit-filled. Because when you do, one of, the, one of the common byproducts of that is you're going to have a song in your heart. Amen. And the singing won't be filler time. It won't be a waste of time to you. It'll be a time when you can encounter God and encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. It's very good. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Thank you for being faithful tonight. Another wonderful uh, crowd. And uh, so appreciate your faithfulness to God's house uh, since we've been meeting back. Uh, we just have more and more of our church members getting more comfortable with coming back. And it's so good to see everybody assemble. I want to thank publicly, if they can hear me, all the nursery workers. Uh, we open the nursery back up. Pastor said it takes some 120 every month or so uh, to staff those nurseries. I'm thankful for uh, Miss Alexa and Miss Emily and Miss Erica and the work they put into organizing the nursery ministry. And all of those that worked in there this morning, working in there tonight, and will work in there in the future. I hope you'll just jump right back in there and serve in that vital, vital ministry of our church. Um, also want to uh, welcome, I should have done this on Wednesday night, maybe we should have done it last Sunday, but I, I want to welcome back our summer intern uh, for the second summer, um, Eli. He's in the back with headphones, and so Eli wants you to stand without unplugging your headphones there, and so everybody can see, everybody wave at Eli. Welcome him back to Fellowship Baptist Church. That, that was an arousing welcome, Eli. They, they went all out for you. Apparently, they're really happy about it. Let's welcome Eli back to Fellowship Baptist Church. Very good. Uh, he, uh, he graduated from Heartland Baptist Bible College just a couple of weeks ago and had several different options for what he could do 
after Bible college. And believe it or not, he chose Fellowship Baptist Church in Liberal, Kansas. He wanted to intern at least another summer and learn from, from pastor and the staff here and uh, be around you. Uh, he loved his experience at Fellowship Baptist. And he wanted me to tell you this, that he is open any weeknight for a free meal. And so um, if you want to uh, get a cell phone number from Brother Mike or myself and uh, text him. And uh, he is no longer, well, I, I'm not going to go there. Um, I was going to talk about his, uh, his relationship status, but I'll let him tell you about that. Um, but uh, he, he is, he is uh, looking into a, a female in the state of Washington. I'll just go ahead and tell you. So, ladies, he's off limits, all right? He's no longer single. I know some of you had your mind made up. If, he, if that boy comes back. But, uh, no, he, he's taken. I apologize for that. Um, but he's already going to help a lot in the media ministry and other areas of the ministry. So get around and encourage him this summer. Um, if you're in 1 Thessalonians 5, say amen together. Amen. Pastor did a, a great job at pointing out this morning some of the vital ministries of Fellowship Baptist Church. And what I liked most about that presentation, that point, was that he pointed out how many of you are actively serving, faithfully serving in those ministries. And, and I don't know if it had an effect on you, but, but I was pretty surprised by some of the numbers it takes uh, to staff folks for some of the ministries that we run around here. And there were, there were many ministries, by the way, that he didn't mention that aren't really organiz, organized necessarily, but people just do. Um, I, I thought of Brother Charles that comes and fixes our buses a lot. We don't have like a bus maintenance ministry. If we did, he, he would be the head of it. Um, but uh, there, there's other ministries that, that what, men come to our, our church and do things and, and ladies come and and, and you don't ever want recognized, and we understand that. But, but I'm just thankful to be in a church where people are active. Um, we don't have to beg for volunteers. It's pretty refreshing, pretty awesome. Um, but did you know there's actually a ministry that every member of Fellowship Baptist Church should be involved in? But it's a ministry most members of our church tend to avoid. I don't want to pour rain on, on the positivity of your point this morning. Because I am thankful for the, for the active members of Fellowship Baptist Church. But there is one ministry that, tends, that we tend to avoid. It's not the team ministry. It's, it's not first touch ministry. Not the music ministry, children's ministry, any of the like. In this ministry, there's not a waiting line of those that want to get involved. And probably to our fault, it's a ministry we haven't emphasized a lot. Before I tell you what the ministry is, you need to know that God has called you to this ministry if you're a member of Fellowship Baptist Church. And don't let that get you nervous because it doesn't take a special talent, it doesn't take a spiritual gift, just a heart for people. I'm talking about the ministry of mutual accountability. When I speak of the ministry of mutual accountability, I'm talking about a ministry we have toward each other in the Fellowship family. The responsibility of holding one another accountable. But let's be honest, most of us don't like doing this. I, for one, don't like doing this. In fact, if you are the kind of person that likes to keep other people accountable, you probably aren't prepared to fulfill this ministry biblically and appropriately. It's not comfortable, and it shouldn't be. However, if we want to be a thriving church like Thessalonica was, we're going to have to understand how to practice mutual accountability appropriately, timely, and in a healthy way, despite our nat natural inclination to avoid it. I began to think, 
Why do we avoid this ministry? I already admitted to you, I think a lot of the reason why some church members avoid it in Fellowship Baptist Church is, well, it's not a kind of ministry we structure. When we run people through the first steps class, it's not on Brother Mike's list to assimilate new members into the accountability ministry. We've, ne we don't, we've never offered any training for how to keep somebody accountable. Maybe as a church we could begin to establish that culture better, but what are some of the things that you and I tend to use as rationalizations for why we don't confront another brother or sister in Christ appropriately and timely and patiently and lovingly? Why don't, what are some things that we're thinking in our mind? Don't put this one up there, Tammy, because I didn't even put it in my notes. It just came to me. But it is the truth. I think one of the main reasons why we don't do it is because of our lack of proximity and relationship to one another. You, you only feel, you don't even feel comfortable keeping like your closest friend accountable, let alone a church member that you don't know. And, and, and so when Paul wrote Hebrews chapter 10 or so, I think is what it was, or 11, um, around that area, when he said, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, do you know why he said to not forsake coming to church when the doors are open? you got to read the rest of the verse. We tend to stop there and just harp on, you better come to church. But the main application of that is this, so that you may be able to provoke one another to love and good works. If you're not assembling together, you are not getting close enough to your brother and sister to Christ to be able to have an avenue through which to speak into their life. You don't just walk up to a stranger and say, I don't think you're everything you need to be. God bless you. And if you do, you got problems. I think that's the first reason, but I, I wrote down some other things that we might think or say. Here's a common one. I don't want to come across judgmental. Of course, we're basing that, and this is all introduction. I'm going to get to the two verses in our text in a moment. But this is setting a foundation for our text because we tend to avoid this because we base this thought on Matthew 7, 1, the most misapplied verse in all of Scripture. Judge not that ye be not judged. The problem with our interpretation of that even when we're, we're trying to talk ourselves out of a ministry of accountability, the problem with our interpretation of that is we don't read six verses down. And that's usually the result, usually the reason why we take verses out of context, because we don't read the verses around them. We aren't Bible students. We just look what's on a bookmark and claim it. But if you go down to verse 6, Jesus tells us to give that which is holy to the dogs and don't give uh, pearls to the swine. You, you recognize that? Well, well, how are we to know who's a dog and who's, who's swine? Unless we make judgment. Healthy judgment, right judgment. Jesus is saying, I'm trying to help your mind if this is a rationalization for why you might not pursue this ministry of accountability. Here's what Jesus is really saying. Don't judge others for minor sins in their lives without addressing the major sin in your life first. That's why he says, take the log out of your eye, then go help your brother get the speck out of his. Which leads to another reason why we shy away from mutual accountability. And you might say, because I have a log in my eye. Or because I have a speck in my eye. I'm an imperfect person. Who am I to correct somebody else? If I go to them and try to help them through something, you know what they're going to say? They're going to point it right back at me. And I'll be guilty as charged. So I'll come across hypocritical. Imagine if, the, if, if me and pastor took that approach to ministry. We would never preach a single sermon. Because the one I'm preaching tonight, I haven't practiced perfectly. The one I preached on Wednesday night, I didn't practice perfectly. The one pastor preached this morning, he hadn't practiced perfectly. If we use that mindset, then we're perpetuating ongoing sin in a brother or sister's life. 
So, so, so what are we to do in that situation? Here's what we're to do. We're, we're, we're to know that we're a sinner, but humbly approach another sinner after first addressing our own sin. Not claiming perfectionism, but, 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 but having a spirit in which, hey, we know we're fallen too. And by the way, if somebody comes to you to keep you accountable, don't throw their sin back at them because they pointed yours out. They could be an agent of God's grace in your life. Study David and Abigail, 1 Samuel chapter 25. David would have committed a major sin of murder had it not been for somebody who is an agent of grace that told him what he needed to hear, not what he wanted to hear. Go study that. Those, those illustrations are all through the Bible. And so don't just in defensiveness to your spouse or to your child or to your parent or to your co-church member, just point back, yeah, well, you do this. You have no right to say this because don't do that. Here's another reason why. I'll just pray for them and let God deal with it. Now, that sounds really spiritual because it's partly right. Only God can truly transform the heart. But don't forget God's plan to transform the heart of people and influence the heart of people is people. That's why he used Noah to warn about the flood and why he sent Jonah to warn the Ninevites about God's judgment and why he commissioned 12 human being disciples to perpetuate the work of the church because he uses humans as his tools to influence the heart of other humans. Are you with me? Here's maybe a common one. It's the pastor's job. And this leads us straight into our text where it dispels this myth, because verse 14 of our text says this. Now we exhort you, what's that next word out loud? Brethren. Brethren. It doesn't take long to figure out that he's not speaking to the pastors of the church. He is speaking to the lay women and the lay men of Thessalonica Baptist Church. In other words, mutual accountability is for you. It's for me too. And it's for our pastor too. And it's for our ministry staff too. And it's for our deacons too. But it's also your responsibility. You just can't wait for pastor to preach a good sermon that applies to the member you're concerned about and then say amen as loud as possible. That's not accountability. Are you guilty as charged? You just can't come to me and say, hey, I just need to let you know about this person or let you know about that person. I've learned, I've learned that when we skip Matthew 18, which doesn't start with two people plus a witness. Matthew 18 of solving problems within the family of God starts with one person talking to another person. And when we skip that first step, and listen, I've skipped it in my ministry. I've skipped it recently. Uh, it's easy, easy, easy to skip. When we skip that step, problems arise. I'm telling you, it's, it's an important thing to understand. So then, if accountability in the ministry of that is for you, it's for all of us. And there's really no excuse as to why we don't fulfill that ministry what does it look like? How are we to carry that out? Well, 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 and 15 teach us that the ministry of mutual accountability involves five responsibilities. And I would urge you, church member, if you're thinking in your heart, I'll never do that. That's not my personality. Please ask the Holy Spirit to open your heart to this message. Because this is one of the most neglected ministries not only of our church, but churches all around America. 
where they leave the sharpening and provoking of brothers and sisters in Christ just to the one behind the pulpit, and churches suffer because of it. Here's the first responsibility found in verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. So he says, warn the unruly. That's the first responsibility. That word warn means to reprove. It means to caution. It's usually used in Scripture uh, when it's referring to someone who's confronting sin or correcting behavior. And Paul instructs the Thessalonians to war- Thessalonic, the Thessalonians, sorry, to warn the unruly. The unruly pictures a soldier that is out of step, that is disorderly in their conduct. You, you might have seen pictures on YouTube or the internet or even seen firsthand a unit of soldiers or a group of soldiers at boot camp or training somewhere where they are keeping step with one another. And it's very impressive, almost gives you goosebumps, it's so impressive. Rarely do you see a soldier that is unruly. Where do you, rarely do you see a soldier that gets out of step or out of rhythm with his fellow soldiers. And if you do, it's not long before you see a very passionate drill sergeant come and put him back in place. I'm not at all implying that we ought to be a church full of drill sergeants or have the spirit of a drill sergeant. But perhaps we would do well to have the courage of one. And that when we see a fellow church member who's out of step, unruly, disorderly, threatening the unity and the testimony of Fellowship Baptist Church, we would have enough courage and Holy Spirit-filled boldness to warn them and caution them about their behavior, warn them and caution them about their attitude, which begs the question... What does an unruly church member look like? What kind of behavior is evident in their life? Well, I can't put my finger exactly on it. It comes in so many different forms, but I thought of a couple. The gifted pew sitter who never gets involved but always has an opinion about those who are unruly. The member who shows up for the business meeting but not for worship, unruly. The member that seeks to undermine the authority of their leaders by stirring dissension, unruly. The member that is constantly sowing discord among the brethren through gossip and slander, unruly. The member who is constantly complaining about what they don't agree with but never actually talked about, talked to it, talked to somebody who can do something about it. Out of step. And it's your ministry to go to that unruly brother or unruly sister and warn them and caution them lovingly about how their behavior or their spirit or their countenance or their their attitude is threatening to the unity and to the testimony of Fellowship Baptist Church. Hey, don't come to me. Are you hearing me? I'm not thy brother's keeper. Not thy sister's keeper. I'll be more than happy, not more than happy, but I'll be more than willing to come in on step two of the process. But you ought to be courageous and love your brother and sister enough to go to them. And and by the way, it's amazing how good some church members are at pointing out the flaws in others and even getting frustrated with them, but never go and minister to them through accountability. They'll go home spitting mad from church and never go talk to that brother or sister. The last thing Paul wants is to develop a bunch of spiritual cops in the church of Thessalonica. And the last thing that I'm trying to get across tonight 
is, is that I want a bunch of spiritual cops walking around here, looking down their long religious and elite noses at those who don't live up to their standards. The Bible calls them Pharisees, and that is the group of people that Jesus rebuked the most. We're not trying to have that spirit. I'm thankful to God Fellowship Baptist Church doesn't have that spirit. But it is your responsibility to confront the unruly for the sake of the unity of Fellowship Baptist Church. But Paul says the unruly aren't the only ones that you go to church with. There's another group of people that serve alongside the unruly that require the ministry of accountability, and that's the feeble-minded. Look at verse number 14 again. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded. The feeble-minded are those in the church who are discouraged. If you think about the Thessalonian church and everything we studied that they were facing by way of persecution, the loss of loved ones that they love very, very much, uh, it, it makes sense why Paul would say that there are some in their congregation who are feebly, feeble-minded, they're discouraged, they're brought low. And we would be naive to think that everybody we go to church with is on cloud nine. I would be naive as a pastor to, to think that, that just because you're singing loud tonight means that you're greatly encouraged in the Lord. On any given Sunday, I believe there are congregants within our building that, that are flat out discouraged. Those that have been saved a long time, those that are newly saved, I think that there are some that will be serving in the ministries of Fellowship Baptist Church week in and week out that on the outside will slap a smile on their face, but on the inside they're hurting. They don't want to be high maintenance. They want to be faithful to their ministry. But as they're ministering, they're totally stressed out because, be, because of things at work. They're totally stressed out because they, they left a pile of unpaid medical bills on the counter. They're stressed out because, frankly, their marriage stinks or their kids are unruly. And we've been naive to think that we don't serve alongside of some people and sing alongside of some people and play alongside of some people and greet alongside of some people that, that come to church and they look like they're encouraged, but they're actually feeble-minded we got to be discerning of that. And there are others that, that will be more obvious in their discouragement. More obvious because at one time they were, they, they were right on the field. They were playing. They, they were involved. They were active. They were giving. But now they're just obviously sidelined. They're obviously distant. They're obviously detached from strong, healthy relationships in Fellowship Baptist Church. And so they're more obvious. Some are discouraged because they can't seem to make any meaningful connections within the fellowship family. So while you know this person and that person, this person's kids and that person's kids, and you went to this person's house last weekend, you're going to that person's house next week, and there are some in our church that they've heard us call ourselves a family for years now, but they've never been given a spot at the table. Some church members are discouraged because they're tired. They're simply tired of health problems, and they're tired of job problems, and they're tired of family problems, and they're tired of financial problems. And even though they know they're supposed to be mature enough in the Lord to walk through these problems and still maintain the joy of the Lord, they're just discouraged from too many accumulating things going wrong. And, and listen, it's not that these people stop coming to church. They sit with us. They sing with us. They serve with us. They give with us. They clap with us. But yet they walk right by us. And they're hurting. I don't want to be negative tonight. I just want to be real. Not everyone that you go to church is doing okay. Not everyone's basking in the joy of the Lord. Not everybody is as comfortable in this place as you are. 
And some of what discouragement get the best of them. And it's our ministry to, number one, notice that. And number two, Paul says, comfort them. Bring courage back into their life. Lift them up, edify them, encourage them. Charles Swindoll, I love, I love how he writes. He, he says this about encouragement. This gift may be wrapped in an affirming word, a gentle touch, a smile, a shoulder to lean on. It may simply be our presence. Too often we isolate ourselves like strangers in an elevator. We feel uncomfortable even making eye contact or speaking politely to one another. In the family of God, though, these things must be different. Let's free ourselves to touch one another, particularly the discouraged who need to know someone cares. Did you notice that he says sometimes our ministry of comfort can simply be our presence? I read where a man by the name of Joseph Bailey, who at different times lost three sons. Can you imagine that? Three sons in debt. He wrote this. I was sitting torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved except to wish he'd go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, then left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. Sometimes your ministry of comfort will simply be a ministry of presence. Just be there. Not fixing them, listening to them. Not chiding them, praying with them. Some of us conservative people are so quick to get on people's cases. And we never once empathize with them at all. We want to tell them how, how discouragement is clearly a sin in the Bible. Without ever listening to them, being in their presence, letting them vent even though... 95% of the things they're venting are totally off base. Paul teaches us the ministry of mutual accountability starts with the willingness to warn the unruly, to comfort the feeble-minded. Look at the third responsibility found in verse 14 again. He says, support the weak. Support the weak. You know, I don't think Paul has the physically weak in mind, though that's a good idea. I think he's talking about the spiritually weak. And if you've been paying attention in this study, you understand the city of Thessalonica was an idolatrous place. It was nowhere for the spiritually faint of heart to thrive. You needed to be strong. But it was a place where you could be weakened over time because it was a place of complete immorality. Much like the United States of America. And so over time, these young believers would have been weakened by temptation and weakened by temptation and weakened by temptation. And here's the reality. We live in the very same kind of world. And because of our sin nature, we all have seasons in which we become spiritually weak from time to time. I thought I'd get a little bit of agreement on that. We all can become spiritually weak from time to time. Doesn't mean lost. Doesn't mean without Christ. It means that that, that temptation comes our way so persistently that it just weakens us and we give in. It means that pressures at work overwhelm us. It means that, that strained relationships at home sometimes just take our strength away. It means that no matter how godly we are, an unexpected tragedy just pulls the rug out from under us. 
It can simply be a lack of personal time with the Lord in prayer and Bible study. That'll weaken you over time. It can be a lack of faithful church attendance or a lack of true fellowship with fellow believers. Hey, it can be a personal offense that we refuse to let go of. It can weaken our spirit over time. And when this happens, we are responsible to go to that lethargic, weak, even backslidden brother or sister. And and, and Paul says, support them. That's an important word. This informs us of our approach to the spiritually weak. That means we are to stand alongside of them. It means we are hold hold them up. Manny, you're a trainer and oftentimes you've had to go out onto the field when somebody has, has blown out a knee or an ankle or something like that. And it's guys like Manny that support the weak off the field. They don't just say, hey, get up and we'll meet you on the sideline. That's the picture. Taking that wounded, weak brother or sister and not investigating as to why they got into that situation, but first, picking them up, standing alongside of them, supporting them. That could be the baby Christian who just recently got saved and baptized. They're obviously spiritually weaker right now than a mature believer. And isn't it our tendency sometimes to expect growth in new believers or new members a little quicker than what is really possible? And we expect them to keep the same spiritual pace and make the same godly mature decisions as we do, even though we've been saved for a few decades? I was walking through the Denver airport. I think Kevin was five or six years old. And we, 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 if you've ever flown in from out of Liberal into Denver, then you know to catch your connection, you've got to walk 32 miles. And, and, and they have these walking escalators. I took my little five or six-year-old boy. I was holding his hand, and Jenny was behind us, and, and we, we were running late. We had to get there quick. And so we got on that walking escalator, and he let go, and I just kept walking. And it didn't take long for me to look back and realize that I had left my son in the dust and my wife was holding his hand, giving me the stink eye. <laughs> At least there was somebody in our family that understood that you can't expect a five-year-old to keep the pace of a 35-year-old. And sometimes we do that with young believers. Sometimes we do that with new members and we get this pent-up frustration because they should be, they should be keeping the same pace we should be keeping. But they struggle to tithe faithfully right now. And they struggle to stay faithful to their devotions. And they don't have that much input in the fellowship Bible class right now. And they haven't brought anybody to friend day yet. And they're not involved in 4,200 ministries like you are. Give them time. Come alongside them. Sometimes this might involve fellow believers, hey, who at one point were very strong, but are now very weak. And if we're not careful, we'll be more frustrated over their condition than compassionate for it. Because we're thinking they know better, right? How many times are they going to slide back? How many times? Are they, are they like a roller coaster up and down and up and down? If you struggle with those thoughts, then consider what a man by the name of Michael Martin says. I don't think this is on the screen, but it is good. He said the church should support these weak brothers, watch, as beloved fellow strugglers. Did you hear me? Beloved fellow strugglers, meaning that we all struggle. And he said don't desert them as unimportant stragglers. I heard this read, I've read it before, and I think it's fantastic. A man fell in a ditch and he couldn't get out. 
While he was down in the ditch, a realist came by and said, that's a ditch and you fell in it. The realist walked on by. I love this. An optimist came by and said, I believe in you and I believe you can get out of the ditch. And he walked on by. A pessimist came by and said, you'll never get out of, the di- out of that ditch. Then he walked on by. A philosopher came by and said, you only think you're in the ditch. Then walked on by. A reporter came by and said, I'll pay for, for, for an exclusive story of your life in the ditch. Then walked on by. A city official came by, probably from liberal, and said, did you get a permit to be in that ditch? Then walked on by. Forgive me, Brother Kent. An IRS agent came by and said, have you paid your taxes for being in that ditch? Must be from Seward County. Then walked on by. (laughs) I love this place, I do. A preacher even came by and said, I see three noteworthy facts about being in a ditch. A friend came by and said, give me your hand. I want to help you out of the ditch. May our church be full of people who when they see their weak brother or sister fall in a ditch... They don't walk on by. We reach out our hands and we help them out. May we walk into each other's lives when everybody else walks out. That's the ministry of mutual accountability. Warning the unruly, that's hard. Comforting the feeble-minded, that's hard because we're selfish and we don't even recognize who's discouraged around us. Supporting the weak, that's hard because sometimes we lack patience. Which speaks directly into our fourth responsibility. You see on the list, be patient toward all men. Doesn't it make sense that that's what what should go at the end of such a list? If we're going to minister to the unruly and the feeble-minded and the weak, we better have some patience. Now, Now, what does that mean exactly? The word literally means to have a long fuse. But the patient person in this context is to be someone who does not blow up easily when dealing with difficult people. And think about it, as damaging, as unruly and discouraged and weak believers can be to a church, a spirit of impatience with them will only make matters worse. When he says be patient with everyone, I'm thinking of two applications. I'm thinking about being patient as to when we fulfill this ministry of accountability. My dad's always taught me when when it comes to confronting somebody, timing is everything, and right now is not always the right time. He's also taught our church this in, in context of evangelism, but it fits well in accountability. He says this, if you can't pick the fruit, don't bruise it. You get what he's saying? When we're when we're evangelized, trying to get someone to come to church, trying to witness to them, don't shove it down their throat, you might lose them. And when you're keeping somebody accountable, whether it's the unruly, the weak, or the discouraged. Make sure that the fruit is ripe for picking. On the other hand, patience doesn't justify procrastination. So this is a fine balance. Because a lot of times we put off a needed conversation that we should have with another believer and we call it patience. When really it's procrastination. Really it's that we have the personality that we sweep things under the rug and hope they go away. Well, the problem with that is that unruly behavior doesn't stay stagnant. Like, it grows under the rug. And discouragement doesn't stay stagnant. And and, and spiritual weakness doesn't stay stagnant. While we're, watch, while we're putting off confrontation for the sake of patience, it sounds spiritual. Your brother or sister in Christ is actually growing in their sin. They're growing in their discouragement. 
They're getting spiritually weaker. The truth is, some problems get out of hand because we wouldn't courageously deal with them while they were small. Ask a firefighter, what would you rather put out? A little fire or a large grass fire? And they would tell you a little fire. Ask a pastor what he'd rather put out. A little fire or a big fire? A little fire. We should do nothing whether it's being too hasty or, or being too hesitant. We should do nothing that allows the fire to get bigger. I think Paul was probably speaking even more to the fact that we ought to be patient as to how we fulfill this ministry. I think, I think what he's speaking to, I've been wanting to get to this point, is to the spirit in which we ought to fulfill this ministry of accountability. You know, right, that people that we deal with aren't stupid. Now, I know sometimes you think they are, and John Wayne says you can't fix stupid, but you can throw a rock at it. <clears throat> anyway, you know what I mean by that is they have enough relational sense to, to be able to sense when we are irritated and when we're frustrated and when we're condescending. We really can't hide that. If it's not in our tone of voice, it'll be in our body language. If it's not in our nonverbal, it will be in our verbal. And we can say that we're just, we're just calling it straight. That's the kind of person I do. I just say it straight. Well, we got to be careful about that. Because when we approach somebody that's unruly, you understand they're in a very vulnerable time. If they're unruly, if they're out of step, it's likely that you just can't tell them you're unruly. You're going to have to be careful about it. When we seek to comfort the discouraged, we can't give them a three-point outline as to why discouragement is sin. It's impatient. When we try to support somebody that has grown weak, we shouldn't be demanding of them to get their act together. It's impatient. As impatient as a, as a mother who has a little baby who dirties his diaper or spits up and then she disciplines him for that. No mother would do that. Why? Because that's what babies do. Guess what? You go to church with sinners. And sinners do what sinners do. They don't dirty their diapers or spit up, but some of them do, I guess, in our nurseries. But sinners sin. And when they get unruly, warn them. And when they get discouraged, comfort them. And when they get weak, support them. But by all means, do it with the spirit of patience. Do it with the spirit of grace so that when you part ways, they will not be able to say, they came at me wrong. I've been on both sides of that, and it's not fun. I want to give you one more responsibility. It's found in the entirety of verse 15. And at first, it, it appears to be like a verse that stands alone, a verse that's not connected to the context of mutual accountability, but, but boy, it really is. Look at verse 15. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Refuse to retaliate. Look up here. Here's the truth as it relates to our ministry of mutual accountability. Watch. Sometimes the unruly enjoy being unruly. And the discouraged like the attention they get from coming to church discouraged. And the weak truly 
are weak on purpose and have no desire to grow strong. And so despite our best intentions to help, some, I said some, simply do not want our help. And they will even resent us for trying to help. And sometimes that resentment will be expressed through gossip, through rage and anger and slander, or even false accusations. And so the wise church planner, Paul, who predicted this would happen, teaches this church and us how do we respond when we become the object of another person's resentment just because we love them enough to hold them accountable. And he said this, don't return their evil with your evil. Resist that urge, but rather pursue only what is good for everyone involved. And notice, he says nothing about this pursuit of goodness being contingent on whether or not we think that person who is evil towards us deserves our kindness. Man, this is a hard reality, but it's true. You might do everything right when you approach a brother or sister in Christ. You only approach them after you prayed, and you only approach them because you're close to them, and they know you care, and you only approach them at the right time with the right spirit, yet still after all that, they didn't receive that and even go a step further to make you their enemy. They might call you everything in the book, either to your face or behind your back. And to you, church member, I would say this. Overcome evil with good. And don't let one failed attempt to minister through accountability cause you to never do it again for somebody that God places in your path. That would be evil. You might be able to walk away from that situation and that was good, but it's just as evil to say, I'll never try that again. You see, love is vulnerable. The ministry of accountability places you at risk in some regards relationally, but it is a ministry that God has called each of us to fulfill. And hear me, you are not responsible for their reaction. You're responsible for how and when you fulfill the ministry of accountability appropriately. And I've taught you tonight. I'm thinking of a young man right now, and I could think of many, and Pastor could too. A young man that I invested my life into. When I say my life, I'm talking about every resource I had. Ton of energy. A ton of time. A ton of love. A lot of late nights. Another family in our church did the same. Drove hundreds of miles to bail the kid out of jail, basically. Gave him two and three and four and five chances. Our Christian school opened up their arms to help him out. And yet I stand here tonight. I have no idea where he's at. My latest act of kindness towards him was basically met with selfishness. I was taken for granted, taken advantage of. And that's not, that doesn't, you don't feel any sympathy for me. That's not the point. I'm telling you the reality. When we fulfill the ministry of accountability, we are taking a risk. But I would rather take a risk in obedience than sit on the other side of the auditorium and watch the unruly person stay unruly. I'd rather risk in obedience accountability when I encourage the discouraged or support the weak rather than to get pinned up with frustration and talk to everybody else about it. 
And I understand, and every one of you that have worked with children and young people and adults alike, every one of you have, have probably invested your life into somebody and, and, and they have let you out to dry. And you are tempted, listen, you are tempted to get real calloused and real stale and real vindictive and real closed off and you keep people at about this distance because you've been hurt one too many times. If that's you, I would encourage you to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. One, he's never let you down. Number two, he was forsaken by the 12 men he gave his life to. And he didn't quit. How would you finish this statement? If it wasn't for, and you fill in the blank, keeping me accountable, I might not be here tonight. If it wasn't for that person warning me when I was unruly, coming alongside and comforting me when I was discouraged, supporting me when I was spiritually weak, if it wasn't for this person, who are you thinking of right now? If it wasn't for this person, I might not be here tonight. And God is calling you to do in somebody else's life what that person has done in your life. God, help us to thrive in this ministry of accountability. Stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye closed. Church, I've tried my best to strike the right balance with this text. I wanted intentionally to create some urgency in an area of weakness in our church. But listen to me, with every head out and every eye closed, listen to me. While I wanted to intentionally provoke a sense of urgency about accountability and your role to play in that, I did not want to come across in a way that produces a bunch of Pharisees. That's not the point. It's about, it's about helping our brother and sister in Christ. I can tell you this, I'm thankful that as a church, if we've erred, we've erred to the side of hesitation instead of hastiness when it comes to accountability. I'd rather have to hurry you up when it comes to admonishing your brother and sister than Christ rather than slowing you down. I'd rather have to talk you into it than to reap the harvest of your vindictive pharisaical attitude. And so as a pastor, I want to tell you thank you. Thank you for loving people. Thank you for loving people right where they are. I don't think we're perfect at it, but I think we're pretty good at it. Thank you for being patient with people. Thank you for giving people a space of grace. Hey, bus workers, thank you. Thank you for every week when you, when you tell the same unruly kid to sit back down and he gives you a dirty look. Thank you for being patient with him. Youth workers, when, 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 when that same person keeps being unruly during the message and, and, and you can't seem to get them to calm down, thank you for sitting by him again. For those in here that behind the scenes, you know that, that there's a lot of interaction between you and other church members, maybe just one, but one you've taken under your wing and had it not been for you holding them up, had it not been for you comforting them, had it not been for you warning them of their behavior, they might not be here tonight. To you, I say thank you for that. Keep doing that. If you've been hurt, keep doing it. 
you've been taken advantage of, keep doing it. If you're getting tired of it, keep doing it. If you're becoming cynical because of it, get a better attitude. I want this place to be a healthy place. I want this place to be a thriving place. And I don't know if you've noticed, but Fellowship Baptist Church has grown and is growing. And it's beyond the scope and the reach of one individual from a pulpit. We must be brothers and sisters in Christ in the same family, concerned enough about one another when we can look across the auditorium and because we know somebody well enough, we know when they're discouraged. We should care enough, church, every time we come in that we notice a couple that sits by themselves every church service. We notice a single adult that sits by themselves every church service. We should love them enough to come alongside and say, hey, can I sit with you? Not get so caught up in our own world our own family, our own clique, that we fail to give people a seat at the table. God, help us. I thank you for where you're doing great. I challenge you where you're not doing so great tonight. I've tried to strike that balance. So if there's any area of this ministry that you need to say, God, give me courage. God, give me boldness. God, I've calloused over. Give me softness of heart. Give me sensitivity then I want you to spend the invitation time praying for that.